Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And on the phone with us today is Chase Cunningham, Principal Analyst at Forrester, to discuss the zen of zero trust. Welcome, Chase. Hey, thanks for having me. So we spoke with you a little while ago about the threats to critical infrastructure. And in that conversation, Chase, you referenced several times the concept of zero trust and where it is in terms of creating strategy and then, of course, implementing that strategy. Can you restate what is zero trust and where is the industry relative to zero trust? The zero trust is essentially, uh, I won't say a new concept in security, but it's newish in that it's really taking wide adoption over the last couple of years. But the concept there is essentially that moving away from letting everything traverse the network and the Internet based on people and accesses and, and information needing to be everywhere all the time. You're, you're essentially going from having a perimeter-based security where you think that the bad guys are outside, and as long as they're outside, you can trust what's going on inside, when in reality, zero trust sort of mandates that you accept that you already have sort of failed in that security posture. You accept that the bad guys are in, and now you work from the inside of the network out, trusting nothing until they prove otherwise. And by nothing, you mean networks, computers, infrastructure, people, you're, the, the whole soup to nuts of this? In, in my in my best uh, born in Texas redneck, don't trust nothing. Yeah. <laughs> And the concept of they're already inside, I know there's been several hacks where the code was installed well before it was activated. Is that part of the impetus here, or is it just more that you just you just have to get to a belief system that there's already there's already been a breach and and you're already vulnerable? Uh, well, yeah, it's trying to get the the mindset of of the leadership, the board, everybody sort of involved in that process to to understand that even though, you may not actively have some breach or some uh, compromise taking place right now. Statistically speaking, you will, and it's going to happen. So uh, the fact that we've had failures nonstop for the last decade plus means that the old paradigm of perimeter-based security, keeping the bad guys out, really high walls, simply does not work. So, it, you know, move with the fact that they are in, they are there, and your only way to combat that is to start small, start internal, and work your way outward. So the concept is I can't have a moat and castle approach where I build to keep everyone out, but everyone inside is part of my community. Everything is, is, is part of the zero trust concept, but it's not that as if I'm going to stop the music and audit everything and then clean up. It's much more of a, a, a persistent modular approach to clean as I go and whether that's going to the cloud and I can operate in a greenfield or going to my existing assets and just one by one sort of knock off these pieces. Is that a progression of this? Right. And that's why I, you know, I, I jokingly say it's kind of like the, uh, the David Carradine walking in the desert then type thing where it's a, it's a concept just, just to, to basically have a, a guidepost to stand on and say, if we're going to try and fix the network, fine, let's do zero trust for the network and we'll take care of that piece now. Once we get that and we got it right, then we'll do zero trust for the users. And once we have the users right, then we'll do zero trust for X. And by doing that, being modular and focusing on what you can fix and applying those controls to it, you ultimately are doing the right thing anyway. So, you know, you're, you're pushing the bad guy out just by default. 
we're in an environment now where most companies are in some form of digital transformation, where companies are increasingly interested in flex manpower, both in terms of outside contractors and in terms of just making sure talent management is responsive to needs. So the people equation is also quite fluid. So zero trust is not a one and done. It's a, a persistent where you're always keeping track of what have you audited before, what's next, because you can't, there's no single audit and then you're done for the next five years thing. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, I, I say it's a strategic initiative. It, uh, it's, it's a it's a it's a methodology and a practice to put in place to say this is our this is our goal for our environment. It's uh, it, it drives me bonkers when I do uh, engagements with companies and I ask them what their strategy is and they say we're going to be FIPS compliant. It's like no FIPS compliance is something that you do or they say well we're going to have a, a more secure network. No, that's just something you want. Like the the reality of it is. is Strategic initiative is you can walk into the boardroom in front of everybody that's responsible for that company and say, we will have a zero trust infrastructure and explain that. And everybody understands that this is a long-term strategic goal. So how does that work from a, from a budgeting perspective, right? So if it's, it's not a one and done situation, it's this consistent thing that you're constantly auditing, how much can a firm really spend here? Uh, Well, so that's, you know, that's where we've started rolling out some of the stuff that if you read the research around the ZTX framework, and we're actually doing reports right now based on looking at the the pillars of that framework and how much budget would be allocated for each one so that you could look at it as a, a leader and say, uh, I have, you know, a hundred grand to spend on my security uh, infrastructure. What would I apply where based on the needs? And that, that framework is, is being finished and, for, and fleshed out solely for the purposes of letting an organization look at it and say, I'm doing zero trust network. These are the vendors that have zero trust network capability. These are the technologies they offer, and this is the capability it gives me, and this is how much I should estimate it would cost me to do that. Yeah, there's a basic question here of capital allocation because companies are already being stretched in terms of how much can I spend to digitally transform? How much can I expend to advance or build new experiences to compete in an experience economy? And we've had this discussion before, Chase, where, you know, there's a greater thirst for investment in security after you've been breached, meaning after the water's sort of flown out. And this is an argument of actually moving those investments in, assuming you've been breached, but not in a sort of a a terrible way. How do they handle these trade-offs in terms of the capital allocation of of doing this as a sizable chunk so you have speed in the process so it's not taking you 10 years to complete the first run of Zero Trust? So uh, interestingly enough, and uh, you know, we've got evidence to back it up, the organizations that we've worked with that have gone down the path of Zero Trust at, at any tranche have gained uh, budget actually because they've gone and gotten rid of the crap that they don't need that they put in place. And what you're, what you're referencing there is, is really true, right, is the security industry has sort of proliferated this message of, like, let's spend exorbitant amounts of money on Frankenstein technology, hope we can bail it together with, you know, uh, duct tape and wire and make it work, when in reality, if you, if you actually go down strategic paths using frameworks and have a, a clear goal, you can, you can go and say, I don't need uh, all this stuff to do these things. You, you say, I'm doing networks, so I need next-gen firewall. I'm doing access, I need next-gen access. You know, I'm doing data, so I need data encryption. It's, 
it's much more clear and concise, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a better way of allocating budget to those problems. Yeah, that brings my brain over to the, you know, to the, the brother or sister of Zero Trust, which is sort of zero-based budgeting, which is I'm going to look piece by piece at people or functions or capabilities and determine do I need them and do I need to advance them and how would I invest in them? Is it the same kind of concept? Yeah, same kind of concept. And, and if you, you know, the, the, the research and the, the experience that, that I've had in this also shows that organizations that do this actually will go from a CapEx heavy model to an OpEx heavy model. And everybody has budget to spend on OpEx. CapEx is a whole other story. Uh, you know, to give you a, a quick anecdote, there was one company that I talked with that when they showed me the technologies they had in place for their relatively small network, they had 58 different vendors doing about 35 things. So that means, you know, a third of them were basically redundant. And it was like, how much CapEx are you spending on this stuff that you don't need that's solving a problem that this solution over there solved? So you're you're closely aligning the the execution of zero trust with the execution of an optimization play, or whether that's whether you're streamlining your vendor community or optimizing your capabilities. I mean, this is this is a way to look hard at what am I spending and is it worth it? Yeah, I mean, the, the goal and any any good security professional shouldn't be telling you that you need to go buy, you know, X, Y, and Z and putting it here and using this for that, no, no, no. They should actually be able to drive the progression of the technology based on the, the solution that it provides. Uh, that's, that's why micro-segmentation is something that's coming along really heavily now and, and why uh, next-generation access is, is a pretty big thing to take over, too, because... You can put one or two or three things and solve a whole lot of problems without eight, nine, ten different vendor solutions in place. Could you say more about micro-segmentation? What, what does that mean? So it's, it's kind of a, I wouldn't say new, but newish uh, use of technology in the space where you're using virtualized resources to basically cut off sections of the ne- network that you can isolate. And so if you could picture a a big infrastructure, and I said, this stuff over here is my crown jewels, my intellectual property. I'm going to cut that off from the network, and only X can access it. And then this over here is my HR uh, section, and only HR can access it. It's a, it's a way of using virtual resources, uh, you know, VMware and some of the other solutions that are out there to, to isolate and segment those uh, critical pieces of the network so that you have command and control of it. And doing it right actually improves auditing and knocks down compliance because you're not uh, auditing the entire infrastructure. Right. So if one section is breached per se, it's not like the rest of the organization is going to fall down because they're so interconnected. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. I mean, I'm retired Navy and we always talked about watertight integrity, right? Where if the front part of the ship is sinking, you cut it off and you can stay afloat. And that's exactly what you're doing with micro I want to go back to a point that Victor made in terms of this move, you know, to digital transformation and open ecosystems. I'm assuming that zero trust obviously applies to this new environment, but how? Because it just feels like you're opening yourself up to so many more vulnerabilities if you're opening up your firm to be operating in that more open environment. You know, the that's sort of the the problem that we've we've had, right? Is that uh, the internet itself was built on this concept of sharing everything all the time and that there would never be any malicious use of the of an internet and we all see how well that's worked out when in reality you know business networks and things like that 
the, the concept of open sharing and constant information flow and whatever else is literally detrimental to what is going on in, in a security capacity. So uh, it, it's just a, a change of mindset and a change of uh, priorities to get around it and say, we're going to take care of this and we're going to make sure that we really lock this down uh, because we accept that we are going to be breached and I don't want to wind up on the cover of USA Today. Yeah, I mean, if we take it into an industry standpoint, whether in Europe with at the uh, outcome of PST2 or in the U.S. or wherever, so where open banking is becoming much more of a normal way of working and building out the ecosystems of banks plus fintech plus whatever, I mean, you 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 are depending upon winning in the free flow of information. But with a huge caveat that, which is any breach puts that ecos- the entire ecosystem uh, on the defense. So how are security professionals thinking of zero trust and thinking of whether my reference point is banking or insurance, utilities, whatever whatever market you look at, there is an increasing uh, desire to move much more towards open open ecosystems that depend on the free flow of data. So, so those open ecosystems uh, for business purposes should be open in the context of that's where you're exchanging information that keeps you know business moving. But the data that's behind that and the users and the accesses and the networks behind that should be functioning in a zero trust environment so that you aren't worried or don't have to necessarily uh, focus your efforts on defending that environment because you know that it's locked down, because you know that there's no open shares, there's no multiple access points, there's no crazy networking things, things like that. Do your business and be open where it's okay to do your business and be open. Don't do it in those protected environments. So we're in a climate now where a lot of those ecosystems are challenging each other to whether they're GDPR compliant, um, if they work internationally or, or support EU citizens. And so you have the ecosystem sort of giving each other their own health checks. Is that the same kind of thing that's going to happen in Zero Trust where if I'm an ecosystem in whatever way I participate in it, I would need to look across that to check whether I'm thinking of it from a micro-segmentation standpoint or what have you, that piece by piece is underway with an ecosystem-oriented, zero-trust type of execution. You know, I, I wish that it would work that way, and maybe someday in the future it will. Uh, you know, honestly, uh, one of these days I'm going to find my way to get up in front of Congress and testify about this whole zero-trust thing because – if you if you put it in place and if you followed it as as a mantra and as a strategy, uh, you're you're going to be more secure. And like I've said in the past and whatever, the goal in, in security is not to be a thousand percent perfect all the time. That's impossible. Your goal is to be faster than the poor sucker next to you that slows down to tie his shoes when there's a bear chasing you. Bear's always the bad person in that example. Well, bear, you know, cougar, pick your animal. That's yeah. gonna- Pick your predator, right? So Jen earlier brought up the the concept of the human being, the employee. And we have a significant uh, discussion about the role of VX, whether it relates to CX or just relates to the idea that in this economy, talent management is is just critical. So you have you have at least in theory this contrast of I I want to empower and trust uh, my employees and uh, in a zero trust concept, I'm not going to trust them. How does that wash? 
Well, so when I say that I'm not going to trust my employees and I'm not going to empower them in zero trust, I, I don't mean that I'm going to make it so miserable that they don't want to do their job. What I mean is I don't trust that they're going to have the knowledge, have the throughput, have the time to sit there and do all the security stuff that they need to do to keep my enterprise secure. So what I'm going to do, because I don't trust them, is I'm going to put things on their machines, I'm going to monitor, I'm going to look at, and I'm going to enforce policies that make sure that they don't have a choice except to be enablers of zero trust, and they are part of my defensive perimeter. Um, you know, I'm not going to just hand my new employee a laptop that has nothing on it, no security controls, no telemetry data, no behavioral monitoring, and send them home and say, go use the Internet, and I hope you don't screw up and cause me problems. Um, that's just not the way it's going to work. The other problem, too, is we have a mobile workforce. I was going to say homeworkers, yeah. Yeah, if I, if I issue somebody a laptop and they go home, they may not be the only person that uses that laptop. They may let little Timmy or little Sarah jump on it for homework, and I've got you know kids running around my house, and good luck trying to keep them off of malicious websites. So, Chase, I'm going to put that in motion because one of the vulnerabilities of the enterprise is not the technology but the person. And one of the key vulnerabilities is when they go hunting for passwords, passwords that are sloppily maintained or obvious in nature or released because someone's doing some social engineering. So is this the, one of the examples where we really just can't trust that the existing password techniques are robust enough or the hackers just simply know that that's just an easy door into the castle? Uh, unfortunately, we're never we're never in, in the near future. Maybe you know a decade from now, biometrics will be where it's supposed to be. But we're not going to move away from passwords. So my my stance on that is uh, from zero trust. Right, I don't trust that people can come up with passwords that don't suck. So if if I'm gonna if I'm gonna put people into a, an infrastructure environment, it's not optional for them. They are going to use a password manager that I put in place, and that password manager is going to create their passwords for them. So, you know, all they got to remember is one password that has multi-factor authentication to get to it. And after that, everything else is handled by the password manager. Uh, and, you know, the organizations that I've talked with that have done that and used the type of uh, capability strategically, they win for two reasons. Number one, nobody's no longer using, you know, password one for their password. Number two, they only have to remember one password, not 75 or 100. So, Chase, in your prior answer, you mentioned behavioral modeling or behavioral profiling. This is the idea that after a period of time, you have a fair sense of how I, Victor, how you, Jen, or how you, Chase, behave, what things you do, when you tap in, how much you download, that type of thing. And when it becomes anomalous outside a some sort of defined threshold – Something happens that says there may be something anomalous happening. We should be taking a peek. Is that sort of the essence of behavioral modeling? Yeah, and I, you know, there's there's a lot of folks that say, well, gosh, it's kind of big brotherish, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Where uh, the reality of it is, is like you're you're using my network. This is for my business. You're an employee here. If you want to have a job and you like that paycheck, I'm going to monitor what you're doing, whether you like it or not. Uh, you're not trying to get in people's lives and from being a security professional. Like, I don't care what you do in your free time unless it's a threat to my, you know, infrastructure. Uh, and the behavioral monitoring stuff can literally be as simple as telemetry data that looks at the device and looks at logins or something like that and says, you know, every day, usually around 9 o'clock, Sarah logs in from Chicago 
And for some reason today, she logged in from Kuala Lumpur. Well, that's probably not Sarah, and we probably have a problem. Right. Now, how does it work with some of the machine learning techniques applied through AI where the behavioral modeling is going to be simply much more advanced and much more granular and much more of a heuristic? I mean, does that get to the point in time where whether it's an employee or whether it's was part of your sort of your flex ecosystem of people that you're working from, where it does get into a place where you are nearing the line of over-monitoring and nearing the line of some ethical decisions, whether you make them or not or how you make them, you're still making some ethical decisions about how much you're going to monitor because the tools are getting that much better through things like machine learning. I mean, yeah, the tools are getting a lot better uh, about that, and there are some really useful machine learning uh, capabilities out there that, that fall into that category. But, you know, I always tell people, uh, you know, I, I worked at the NSA for a long time in the military. Your credit card company knows more about your behavior than the NSA ever will. So, like, the fact that people get, you know, worked up about, uh, you know, somebody monitoring their behavior so that they can do their job and keep the network secure is kind of ridiculous when we live in an age where, you know, Zuckerberg's up there testifying right now in front of Congress about the fact that they're looking at everything you do all the time. So, uh it, it, yeah, it can it can be a little bit sort of creepyish, I, I guess. But uh, the reality of it is, is, the security folks are there not to impede what you're doing. They're actually there to make things better. And they, you know, they by default should not be doing uh, weird, creepy stalker stuff based on the technology they have in place. Yeah, the prior episode with Jeff Pollard on the surveillance economy sort of went through this idea that we have already crossed into the new normal. We just have to both name it and cheer point of the credit card companies sort of accept that that's already the way it works. And it's simply we just have to be selective and intentional about the tools we use and how we use those tools. And from a policy standpoint, what are employees or, or contractors signing up for? Are they aware and will they, you know, do they comply? Yeah. And I mean, I, I think from the, uh, the perspective of, if you know, a lot of times companies will write really good policies and they'll start to put them out and then, Somebody will go like, whoa, that's a little bit intrusive. And it's my question usually is like, well, A, then why did you write the policy that way? And B, if you're going to write policy and not put it in place, you might as well stick it in the men's room because it's more useful. So, Chase, it'd be great if maybe you could just level set in terms of where we are today with Zero Trust or um, this new model that you've been talking about in the market, Zero Trust Extended or ZTX, and maybe some learnings um, from the market. Yeah, so, uh, you know, recently we did a study where we basically went and asked, uh, I want to say it was uh, 400 companies all over the world, what their familiarity was with Zero Trust, trying to actually see if we were just blowing smoke or if this really was, you know, taking off the way that we thought it was. And interestingly enough, uh, 60% of them came back and said, we are actively pursuing Zero Trust in our infrastructure. And another 15% said, while we're not doing zero trust right now, we will be moving towards zero trust in the near future. So, you know, to me, having 70-something percent out of 400 companies that are huge all over the world say they're doing zero trust is a pretty big, you know, stake in the ground that this is uh, not just Forrester talking about it. It's actually being put in place. ZTX, to follow on to that, has been really, really well adopted. It's, it's been, it hit the, the street, honestly, uh, like a ton of bricks because – organizations were sort of talking about zero trust for a long time, but they kept asking, well, what's the framework for zero trust? And luckily enough, I was able to take over for John Gindervog, and I got to throw ZTX into that whole mix. 
What are companies learning for those that are underway or, or pretty far along? What are they learning in terms of the tricks of execution, both good and bad? I think the the good is that they're learning that that uh, it is a, a different approach, and that it, it actually, if they follow it and sort of uh, embrace it strategically, they they kind of can't go wrong if, if, as they move down the path towards zero trust. I think the the bad with quotes around it, if you will, is is really uh, just like any other sort of um, marketing type stuff that's showing up in the industry. Is you've got organizations that are out there that are saying. Zero trust this and zero trust that, just like they used to say AI this and AI that. And my one worry there is that you know companies and the users and the people that are going to be implementing zero trust are going to start you know buying that marketing rather than really getting it from the source. Uh, and it's it just you know there's always the possibility of sort of skewing the results, if you will. Uh, from a marketing perspective, there's a whole trade around making it seem bigger and better than it really is. Yeah, because marketing never does anything that's not totally accurate, right? <laughs> we are nonfiction writers at our heart. We are fiction writers yeah. as a craft. <laughs> <laughs> Good way to put it. Good way to put it. So, Chase, I'm not going to put you in front of Congress. I'm going to put you in front of a board. And, you know, at Forrester, we, are, we, we talk quite a bit about the need for companies to, to invest in digital, to move into much more open systems, and ultimately to take great care but leverage customer data for the purposes of individualization and experiences, but also for protection. With all that tension, and if I put you now in front of a board, what are you saying to that board? I would literally say to them, understand and accept right now that what you've been doing in the past did not work and you are actively compromised today. The only way that you can start fixing that is to embrace these concepts and the strategy around zero trust and use the ZTX framework so that you can tactically and strategically push the bad guys outward from the inside of the network and keep them away from what matters. If you don't want to wind up as the next sucker that shows up on Breach International, you start working on zero trust and you will do things better. Thank you, Chase. Always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, listeners, we'd love to hear from you. If you could take a few minutes to fill out our survey about the What It Means podcast, we'd greatly appreciate it. Visit for.com slash podcast, that's F-O-R-R slash podcast, to provide feedback. Thanks for listening.